We are parents, teachers, and educators. And like you, we're passionate about restoring our culture for Christ. This is Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Hello again. This is Marlon Detweiler with Veritas Press. Uh, this is our podcast called Veritas Vox. And uh, we have today with us David Goodwin, who is the president of ACCS, a, which stands for the Association of Classical and Christian Schools. I had the pleasure of being one of the founding board members of ACCS and served on that board for 22 years. David, how many years did we overlap as board members before you took the staff position of president? You know, I'd have to think about that for a little bit, but it seems like it was maybe five years or so. Yeah, it was at least five years. It was, uh, uh, we had some uh, wonderful times uh, working together. If you could tell uh, tell us a little bit about uh, ACCS in general and what your role has you doing for them. Well, during those years that I was on the board as a a head of school at the Ambrose School in Boise, uh, and you were on the board, I think you were part of the process of recruiting me to uh, ACCS originally. Um, And so I came on board um, largely to fulfill a bit of a strategic plan that uh, yourself, Marlon, and and the the board worked out when I was there. So you were pretty um, you're pretty uh, deeply involved in those years of the the advancement of the ACCS. We were going at the time from a pretty strong organization of a couple of hundred schools. I think there were around two hundred in the membership, or two thirty. We're now at about. 410. Um, and um, the blessing of the growth has largely been through startups. So we've had a lot of startups come in, but uh, that was part of the strategic plan that you helped us launch back in, what was that, 2014 or something like that? That that could be. Well, I certainly was involved in it, but you're giving me more credit than I deserve. Uh, you have really done some wonderful work. Tell us a little bit about the things that you have accomplished in the time frame uh, from uh, taking over in the executive role. Well, you know, um, as an executive of a membership organization, really, it's a it's a bit of a shepherding role more than a, a an accomplishment role. It's been great to work with the schools I've been able to get to. I think probably my proudest accomplishment is I've gotten to over 100 of the schools personally. I know there's some out there I haven't gotten to, but uh, that's been a joy just to, you know, when you uh, move from the school world into the uh, uh, administrative world, you lose touch with students a lot of times. And now I get to be in classrooms with students all over the country. It's been quite, quite uh, gratifying. Uh, as you, uh, you've had a background that's uh, beyond education. Give us a little bit of that background and how that has helped you in your role uh, that you have now. Well, yeah, I started my career. I got a master's in business administration that started my career working for uh, Hewlett Packard um, back in the 90s. And I worked um, in marketing and eventually in uh, business relationships and some strategic marketing work. And so when I came into the classical Christian realm uh, in about 2003 and took on uh, the Ambrose School as as a uh, project, I guess you could say, I used a lot of those skills to build it up, and then I was able to uh, bring those with me here to the ACCS. Now, you don't have a background in education. 
not uh, not other than the school of hard knocks. You know, uh, <laughs> I made my share of mistakes and hard lessons trying to run a school. Uh, certainly, you learn a lot. Absolutely. Well, I think that's telling. And in my observation and personal experience, uh, not having a background in education myself, that is common for many of the people that we know that have been involved in starting schools, sometimes running schools, and certainly being board members uh, on schools. Why do you think that is in classical Christian education? Well, that's a great question, Marlon. I think a lot of it is because um, those who are formally trained in education uh, have a lot of skills, but they also have some baggage they bring with them because the uh, Dewey and uh, progressive model is so ubiquitous in the public school system and then consequently in the Christian school system and in a lot of the ancillary accreditation and, uh, and other areas that um, it's really hard to escape the presumptions and the assumptions that come with uh, being immersed in that. So I think a lot of us came to classical education and said, hey, not only does this look different, but it's very different. And so we, we learned how to do it without the trappings of being uh, in the educational um, establishment. Yeah, we uh, I know early on the first school that we were involved in starting was the Geneva School and it was 1992 when it was started. And I remember initially thinking that a degree in education was a bad thing for a teacher candidate, uh, that it was going to be counterproductive. And in some senses, I think it was. But I've also come to appreciate some of the very practical aspects that they've learned in terms of classroom management and maintaining grade books and communication and that sort of thing. And it's become a, a bit of a challenge keeping that balance. Have you seen that develop uh, in the last, say, 10 years uh, beyond where my early experiences were with uh, uh, being involved in school management? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, by the way, Geneva, that was Gen Geneva in Orlando, Florida, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. 1992 was Geneva. And then in, uh, oh, what was it, 2000. No, 96, uh, Veritas Academy in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, when we moved there. Right. And so those were the years when this movement was driven by passion, I think. Um, a lot of people saw the value of it, and passion still has a pretty big role in it. But one of the, to the point of your question, I, I think you're exactly right that while the Dewey and trappings of, of popular education uh, can be a problem, they are also, uh, in some sense, being trained and the fundamentals of how to do classroom education is is a good thing. Uh, so how do you get one without the other? Well, the simple solution is um, not that simple, which is you build a parallel system. So that's what the ACCS has been about since, I don't know, you were on the board, so maybe you remember the first year we accredited schools, but I think that was probably 1999 or somewhere in there. Maybe It sounds about right. I don't remember when accreditation uh, first started. Uh, my memories are about the early years of there being a very small board and a lot of interest in uh, classical ed. Right. And that was what was fueling the movement, I think, early on. But now we're to the point where we call it our CADE initiative, which stands for certification, um, accreditation, diploma authorization and endorsements, which are basically a bunch of administrative systems we're building to be uniquely classical because one of the things I've seen over all the schools I visited in the last few years 
is that um, it's a struggle to keep the school on vision when everything around you is pushing against the vision. So we want to build a system that is very uniquely um, classical and very um, helpful to schools to help them grow and become the school that they yeah. uh, that that they envision. Vision drift. Uh, now that you mention it, I think is one of the great concerns for a school uh, succeeding and maintaining its success. What thoughts do you have for schools that might be listening? What thoughts do you have for people in the homeschool community uh, who might learn from uh, these concerns that would be ways to know when it's happening and what to do about it? Well, yeah, that's another good question. I, you know, I think what I see the most often is that the boards of the schools, because they tend to rotate, can tend to lose the vision eventually. Uh, it's there at some kind of superficial level in the mission statement and in some of the founding documents, but those don't often get reviewed and boards often, um, you know, they have a three-year term or something. And so uh, every few years, you're, you've got a whole different board. And one of the things that's kind of anathema to classical education is forgetting, uh, forgetting the past, right? Forgetting where you came from and who you are. And that's something the progressives told us was irrelevant. Um, you know, who we, where we came from and who we are wasn't uh, something that they cared about. They cared about where they were going, right? That's the nature of progress. And so we're kind of the antithesis of that. And I think our boards a lot of times can lose sight of that because they they change. So I would say the best thing you can do is recruit board members who have shown a particular interest in the classical uh, model before they ever get to your board. And they've read all the books and they are passionate mm -hmm. about it. Those can be really hard to find. So sometimes you have to cultivate them. But uh, you certainly don't want to bring somebody on the board and then try and see if they can figure it out. It's one of, as you know, Marlon, it's one of those things that, I think George Grant calls it the calling, right? Do you see it? If you see it, you're called to it. <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard him say that, but that actually sounds uh, uh, like it's uh, very true and worth repeating. Let me change subjects for just a moment here. Within uh, ACCS, you were involved in uh, getting a survey to happen. I'm not even sure the right language for it. The survey is called good soil, a, compa a comparative review. How did it happen? What was ACCS's involvement, your involvement uh, in that survey? I'll ask follow-up questions then about what it set out to do and that sort of thing, but uh, stay on those for the beginning and then I'll uh, get into, I, I'm intrigued by the results of the survey and I'll, and I'll mention why in a few minutes too. Yes. Uh, well, I'll credit uh, Hal Whitman up at uh, the Wilberforce School in Princeton for calling me up one day and saying, hey, we've got all these great SAT score surveys that you guys do that uh, tell how well our students do academically. But I've got a lot of people who want to know how do they do spiritually and how do they do in life? I mean, what's the, what's the bigger picture here? Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, but you're talking a really tough thing to survey. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. And he said, well, let's see if we can try. So Hal and I went on a hunt around um, the country for various scholars and academics who had done similar research. So see if we could find some kind of credible source or place to go. And we uh, went through about three or four. And then we landed upon... Um, 
a study that the University of Notre Dame had done previously uh, surrounding five different types of schools. It was sponsored originally. We <clears throat> we didn't have any direct tie to it, but it was originally sponsored. <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, by the Cardis Institute out of Canada. And it was a tracking survey that was some 86 pages long. So it was a pretty exhaustive survey. Uh, we did not have any input into the survey because it had been tra a tracking survey, for those who don't know, runs every three or four years just to okay. see uh, how things are comparing. And so um, this seemed to be a good opportunity. We linked uh, forces with Notre Dame. The, the professor there who had been the lead researcher on it uh, agreed to run the same survey with our students so we could compare the data. Uh, and so... The downside is we couldn't ask any question we wanted to, but the upside, I guess, is that when you've got 86 pages of questions, you're probably going to find uh, something worth knowing. Right. Uh, but we can obviously you get, you get more credit for objectivity in it if you don't get to influence the process. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, the other thing you said is, boy, we're going to need a lot of because, you know, these surveys, they. I know this is going to seem strange or odd to, to people, but sometimes you, between three and 600 uh, respondents of the full survey is all you need to get a statistical validity. But you have to draw that randomly from a large segment. So you can't just pick cherry pick people. So the next challenge we had was finding thousands and thousands of graduates of classical Christian schools. And that took us about a year, year and a half to find enough names that we could just give them to uh, the researchers and they could select at random without cherry picking. So we had, I don't know, three or 4,000 names we gave them. And um, <clears throat> they were able then to run the survey in a scientifically valid way. And that's where good soil came from. Now, the part that ACCS contributed besides the money to rerun the survey was that we took all of the questions um, because the survey was so massive uh, when Cardis had reported on it, they didn't really draw, they just kind of shotgunned. There was like yeah. stuff about church attendance up against stuff about <clears throat> life and career choices. And, you know, um, how, how many, um, <clears throat> I'm so sorry about the voice here, uh, how many, um, influencers they knew. I mean, it was a massive survey. So what we did is we, uh, looked and grouped the uh, survey questions into, I think it was six or seven groupings. And those covered areas like academic preparedness, um, <clears throat> uh, Christian walk, uh, Christian worldview, um, aspects like that. And those six or seven groups um, became the good soil study. Okay. So what you set out to do, make sure I'm, I'm turning a question into uh a clarifying answer, because I think you've really answered it already. Uh, but what you set out to do was to see how graduates of classical Christian schools that were connected to ACCS were doing as young adults in relation to several different categories against several different uh, population segments. What were those segments that uh, classically educated kids were compared to? Well, um, we uh, used the segments that were um, already existing from the Carter survey. So one was public schools, obviously. 
Then there were preparatory schools. So these are independent uh, private schools, largely in the preparatory sector, people who live in the north, certain parts of the country, northeast uh, and the south. These are well-known schools. They usually are the um, the average tuition at these schools, according to the government, is about $21,000 a year. So they're pretty pricey places. Um, the third were um, evangelical Christian schools. And then uh, those are those are what you would consider like ACSI school schools that are associated with the uh, uh, ACSI Association and, of Christian Schools International, <clears throat> largest Christian school organization. Right and right, they have thousands and thousands of members. Uh, so that was one group, the Evangelical Christian Group. The homeschoolers were another one uh, that are in it. And they're, for any of people who are listening to this who may be homeschoolers, I think it would be interesting. Uh, some of the data that we got out of the homeschool side was very interesting. Uh, it varied from one side to the other, but it, um, it, it had some stuff surprised, that surprised us. We didn't, we didn't expect to see it. Um, interesting. Well, you want to unpack that a little bit? Before you do that, though, let me just make an observation from my vantage point uh, at Veritas. Uh, you know, if, if, if kids uh, are in a school, you tend to have a bell curve uh, of, we'll call it the normal bell curve for being in a, a classical Christian school. Um, and in the homeschool world, I find that there are people, the bell curve is probably a little flatter. In the middle, it's not quite as high. In the ends, it's a little bit higher where people who are doing an exceptional job are on one end and people who are doing, shall we, shall we say, not so exceptional a job, uh, a poor job on the other end, you find them a little bit more spread out. But what what did you observe uh, in your homeschool uh, uh, responses? I'll come back to homeschool in just a second. I'll throw in the last group and then uh, we'll go to that. The last group is a Catholic. The Catholic school system is uh, obviously even bigger than the ACSI set. So you had the Catholic uh, diocese schools, or basically all their schools, the the prep schools, the public schools, the uh, evangelical Christian schools, and the home schools were the five. So the home schools tracked most closely to ACCS uh, of the schools, with a few exceptions. And for example, one of the and and I I really don't want this to be in any way uh, a negative on homeschooling. I'm just reporting the data as we got it. It, it. it didn't come through our survey. But one of the interesting things was homeschoolers are as likely to access college uh, as ACCS grads. And, and those two groups are really high, but uh, they don't finish uh, as often. Uh, they were not uh, as frequently. Uh, they did not complete college. So I think that, you know, there was a few little nuggets in there that just came through the data that we uh, brought in from the national survey. Was the homeschool segment a specialty segment within homeschooling focused on classical education in the homeschool or was it, it was a broader group of homeschool? Yeah, it was broad. I mean, again, the, you, you mentioned the fact that we had no influence on the survey as being one validator of the results. The other validator is we did not conduct the survey with the other five. That was all done by Cardis and Notre Dame. So those um, those segments are scientifically studied through, um, through the s- survey techniques that Notre Dame prescribed. So, yeah, the homeschoolers were not picked from any particular group. It was just the broad group of homeschoolers. Interesting. And tell me what the 
most notable results are? I know there are several, uh, but I'm curious to hear what the ones are that you think were most notable as the survey wound up and you were able to analyze the data. Well, when we first saw the data, um, it was interesting. The data came in on a day we had a national board meeting, and so our board wanted to see it, of course. And at the time, um, <clears throat> we didn't um, have uh, a a really an expectation of any sort. We were just going to see what came in, and the the different the biggest story in the survey was the difference between classical Christian graduates and everybody else. Uh, the 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 bar charts are are pretty uh, greatly different. I as I um, told you, I worked in uh, the marketing arena in the in the um, secular world, and part of my job for about five of those years was doing market research around the world on various things. And so I was pretty uh, accustomed to how quantitative research works. And you usually don't see, especially on a survey of this size with this many respondents, you don't see such big dis uh, distinctions between one group and another. So probably the, the biggest thing about um, the, uh, the survey that struck me was just how big the differences were. Um, so go ahead. Well, what were some of those areas where the differences were? Um, if there were big differences, where were they? Were they all positive? Were there some that were uh, surprising but negative? Uh, what What did you observe? Well, boy, um, it's such a big survey that I, you know, I have to dust the cobwebs off here to remember. Um, it's been a couple of years since I was deeply into it. But, um, you know, there were some areas that were really interesting. One of them to me was um, the percent of uh, students who had close friends as adults. So the survey was uniquely studying people 23 to 43 or 42, I think. Okay. So it's studying post-college uh, um alumni and where most um the number of close friends hovered you know between i think it was two and three um for you know really close friends accs was like at seven or something like that so it was way higher um which was an interesting thing it put us in the 90th percentile relative to the to the other um school types and they were all clustered around the same number so Obviously, friendship is not something you normally would think would come out of a school experience. But I think what we saw in that just little bit of data was that um, students uh, who are, grow up in close contact with one another, talking about important and deep things like the great books and, you know, you know all of all of the work that you good work you do there at uh, Veritas and like Omnibus. That kind of thing engenders sort of a desire in life to uh, cultivate good friendships and deep friendships. So that showed up in the survey. That was pretty interesting. One of the things um, that stood out for me was how the kids did in going through college with regard to keeping and growing their faith compared to uh, uh, the others. Uh, are you able to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, that was the original thing we set out to look at is what are their Christian lives look like? Um, Christian life and Christian practice were two of the the um, elements in the survey. And um, in Christian life, yeah, the, um, you know, things like 
um, the frequency of religious service attendance. That was something we thought, you know, obviously that's an easy measure to see. Um, and so more than three times a month, uh, there were three groups that stood out from the crowd, obviously. You had the um, homeschoolers and the ACSI-based sort of general Christian schoolers. And they they sat at about the, uh, I think it was about the 65th percentile. Um, ACCS grads were in the 90th percentile on that. So there was a much higher rate of uh, church attendance. And then... Um, just the survey was interesting because it, it's it looked you could really see as a researcher you could see that the they had spanned a lot of different areas so one would be kind of outcomes what were the outcomes another was attitudes so one of the attitudes that a lot of these uh, alumni had that, that really stood out um was to a question that said i have an obligation to regularly practice spiritual disciplines so it's 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 a sort of an attitude question. What do you believe that this is true? Do you have this? And ACCS graduates were about 20 points higher than uh, the next highest, which was homeschool in, in that case um, on that question. But um, let's, let's pursue that a, a little bit to what within a classical education would you attribute that difference? Well, I think that, one of the things that classical schools emphasize a lot is liturgy and um, uh, catechism. Um, they they memorize a lot of the great um, psalms, the great works of uh, historical poetry. Um, th this kind of work kind of cultivates in young children and then eventually in middle school and high school children um, an expectation that the spiritual um practices that we, uh, you know, use on a daily basis, even prayer, uh, need to remain with you throughout life. It's a richer experience, I think, in a classical school. Um, I think all Christian schools, all evangelical Christian schools are going to do prayer and chapel. Uh, I think it's the classical Christian schools that take it to the classroom, and every day there is um, recitation and discussion about these spiritual practices, and that's why they become more relevant to I have to another idea to have you consider on that too and and that is and this is not true of all practices in classical Christian education it is true in what we've done at Veritas and I think it's true in many ACCS schools and that's the idea that they're addressing things uh, from the past that are good and bad, that they're not shying away from reading tough things. Sometimes those tough things might be um, familiar and uh, congruent with uh, uh, a classical Christian worldview. Sometimes they might be antithetical. So uh, reading uh, uh, Mein Kampf, uh, would clearly be antithetical, but it gives uh, it's it's a sense of uh, a really understanding the historic context and, and not uh, brushing over it. And they're having to interact with these things and establish a foundation at a time where they're still in a K twelve world. They're coached more by teachers than they are in a collegiate setting or beyond. And I I wonder what you think about that. 
really being impactful for building a deep and strong foundation that can't be shaken as easily. Well, I think that's that's clearly true. I think it showed up in many places. One of them is the one you just referred to. But if you look at the um, index on independent thought, independent thinkers, uh, as you pointed out, if you're reading Mein Kampf at a Christian school, um, at least the classical Christian schools I've been to, they have a clear understanding of the wrong in it, but they're willing to engage the ideas with a certain independence. And they're willing to to go through the work and give credit where credit's due. Um, and I think that, you know, in all the works of this, you know, sort of the secular destruction of our country and our, our Western civilization, that from Voltaire to, you know, all the way through to um, Marcuse and the, and the, you know, the Frankfurt school folks, um, that whole stream of thought that carries through the 19th and 20th centuries is part of what we read. Uh, we don't stick, you know, strictly to scripture. And that's why you see, if you look at independent thought, um, that's one of the strongest distinctions. Um, you know, homeschoolers are the next highest group to, to classical Christian schoolers, but we're at about 30, uh, 30 points over the median and they're at about 20. So if you go to public school, for example, your independent thought is negative uh, 10. So um, you, you can kind of get the picture there. Yeah. I wish you had been able, I understand why, but I wish you'd been able to distinguish educational pedagogy types, specifically classical Christian education in the homeschool community, uh, from what I observe and from what I seek to help create. Uh, I believe we would see a lot of congruence uh, between the classical education in homeschools and, and what we see in classical schools. When we set out to do this uh, uh, interview, we didn't know if it was going to be uh, one session or two, and we've come up on uh, about a 30-minute mark, and so we're going to turn this into two sessions. Uh, I hope uh, uh, you, our audience, will come back and join uh, David and me. Uh, we'll be talking... Uh, about more things related to ACCS. There's an exciting thing coming up uh, uh, that we will introduce in the second uh, uh, episode. Uh, and we'll start with uh, learning what other initiatives AC ACCS has planned. David, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you again real soon. Hey, Marlon, if I could just interject real quick. If people want to know more about the survey, it's available online at classicaldifference.org, and uh, it's called Good Soil, so you can find it yep. in there. Thank you so much. I actually meant to say that because when I go looking for it, that's where I go get it, and uh, uh, knowing how to get it is helpful. It's it's a good read. It will really, uh, uh, I think, provide the objectivity that we didn't have back in 1992 when we were out there uh, pitching a classical Christian school in Orlando, uh, talking about what could be. Now we can look back and say, this is what is, uh, and it really is what we thought it would be. In fact, maybe even better. Thank you so much, David. We will see you soon. <laughs>